to my first slide. There we go. Okay. 1986, ALF premiered. If you're not familiar with the show ALF, shame on you. Uh, it's on some of those uh, weird channels that show old TV shows. Huh? He kind of looked like me, a little bit more hair than me, but um, ALF, alien life form is what ALF stood for. His, no, his, his real name was Gordon Shumway, by the way, if you don't know that. I could give you all kinds of ALF trivia and quotes if you want. I won't, though, okay? But 1986, the show appeared on NBC, if I remember correctly, uh, and wildly popular very quickly, but it was also short-lived, Okay. Um, so fourth season, the show's ratings were kind of tanking. People were like, okay, we're done with this. I wasn't, I, you know, I'm like, but as the fourth season was coming to a close and I'm reading now from, I don't remember what site I pulled this from. Oh, ultimateclassicrock.com is where this information comes from. <laughs> Who else is quoting ultimateclassicrock.com this morning? Nobody, I assure you. Uh, let's see here. As its fourth season was coming to a close, networks, network execs pondered whether the series would even continue. With its future undefined, ALF's writers concocted a cliffhanger for the season's final episode. While using a ham radio in a failed attempt to contact Australia, ALF intercepted a coded message sent by his old extraterrestrial fr- friends. The life forms invited Alf to join them on new Melmac, which is where he was from, an offer he grapples with but ultimately accepts. Alf's surrogate earthling family, the Tanners, take him to a scheduled field and say their heartfelt goodbyes. But just as the spaceship's lights approach, the U.S. military alien task force arrives, capturing Alf and scaring off the approaching alien ship. The episode ended with a title card that read, To Be Continued. But it never was. There was never a season five of ALF. So this excellent, perfect show (laughs) ends very disappointingly with a cliffhanger that was never resolved. I still am lacking resolution from 1989, which explains a lot about me, by the way. What happens when the climactic event leaves you hanging? What happens when you're looking forward to something and and you're, you're anticipating something and you get there and it lets you down or even confuses you or makes you regret ever looking forward to something? And again, maybe it's a TV show, maybe it's a movie, maybe it's a book, and you get to the end of it, you're like, well, that was stupid. I wasted half of my life reading this book, and it's stupid. Well, in a similar, not the same way, in a similar way today, we have come to the climactic act of Jesus' earthly ministry in his human body. It's the crucifixion. And what an odd ending to such an incredible life. And we're going to focus today on those outside the circle of God's influence. We're going to focus today on those who conducted the crucifixion and those who were present there. And we're not looking today primarily at those who would make sense of this later. We're looking at those who 
probably would never make sense of this. And they have to be scratching their heads saying, oh, well, that's not very good. So we're going to read today Matthew chapter 27, uh, verses 27 to 44. And next week, Lord willing, we'll get to really the the fullness of what this cross meant and what it accomplished. Uh, But today, we're going to be left hanging a little bit. And hopefully, it's in a good way. So if you would please stand as we read Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 to 44. And we do believe and confess that these are the very words of God, the very truth of truth. So, Matthew 27, starting in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and took the reed, and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, and put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself! If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Let's pray. Father, we, as we recount and read and remember and explain this event, the most tragic and sinful event in human history, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would give us clarity. You would give us hope. And you would draw us to the cross of Christ and ultimately to the Christ on the cross. And we would see him for who he is and be transformed into his likeness. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we have been... On a long journey through the book of Matthew now for over two years. Um, and this is the climax. This is the, the conclusion of the physical life of Jesus who was born of the Virgin Mary and sought out by the Magi and who escaped into Egypt to uh, be saved from Herod's wrath as a baby, and he came back and made his home in Nazareth and headquartered himself in Galilee and conducted a three and a half year ministry 
of teaching and healing and miracles and deliverances. And this is the conclusion that he gets. This is the end. And we know as church folk it's not the end. But to some people standing there that day, this was the end of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And what a sorry end. Verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. Now, we had left off last week with Jesus being taken to be scourged. Pilate had tried a few times to get Jesus released because he didn't find any fault in him. But the chief priests and the elders had stirred up the crowd and they called for Jesus' crucifixion. And Pilate's like, hey, I'll release a prisoner for you. They're like, give us Barabbas. What do you want me to do with Jesus who's called the Christ? Let him be crucified. Wow, what wrong has he done? If you don't release him, you're no friend of Caesar's, another gospel said. Till finally Pilate said, bring out water. Pilate washes his hands and says, I find no guilt in this man. I'm not guilty of his blood. You see to it yourselves. And the crowd calls out, let his blood be on us and on our children. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate, washing and drying his hands, says, fine. And he delivers him over to be scourged. And then we said the scourging, a brutal series of events. And now Jesus finds himself bloodied and beaten at the hands of some Roman soldiers. And these soldiers of the governor, these, those allotted to serve and to protect Pilate, take Jesus into the governor's headquarters. This was a big palace deal, uh, many different places, part of it. And they take him in. And so how many soldiers are we talking here? Well, it says they gathered the whole battalion before him. Now, a battalion, this will clear things up for you, is a tenth of a legion. You're like, thanks for that. Well, a legion is 6,000 men. So a battalion, one-tenth of that would be 600 men. 600. So these soldiers, 600 soldiers, take this beaten, bloodied, scourged Jesus into the governor's headquarters. Now keep in mind, 600 men. Why? Why do they take him into the governor's headquarters? Well, it's not nice. Let's just say that verses 28 and 29. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Wow. Now keep in mind that Jesus has been scourged before this. So his flesh... Uh, all around his torso, the front, the back, especially they would have laid him, tied him up by his wrists and had him laid out there and they would have literally taken these cat-and-nine-tails type of deals and they'd have literally been ripping the flesh off of his torso, exposed nerves, bleeding profusely, and these 600 men take him in and they strip him, which is bound to hurt, Right? clotting blood sticking to the clothes he was wearing. And after stripping him, which would have also been humiliating, right? It says they put a scarlet robe on him. Now this would have been the color of the garb that the Roman soldiers would have worn. And it was probably an old soldier's robe laying around there and they placed it on him. 
probably not very comfortable, probably rough, old, burlapish stuff, and they placed it on his lacerated torso. But they're not honoring him as a companion. Quite the opposite, they're mocking him and mistreating him. And they decide to crown their new battalion member as their, quote, king. So they crown him. They twist together a crown of thorns, giving him a right Roman laurel head wreath. You know, like Caesar would wear. You've seen it on the coins and on the pictures. they got this laurel around them. Or maybe sometimes the winner of the event would get a laurel crown on his head. Well, they gave him a crown, but it wasn't laurels. It was thorns. And they push that crown of thorns down into Jesus' head, puncturing his head. And there's not much going on up here except some skin and some bone. And then they give their newly crowned king a scepter. King's got to have a scepter, right? A rod. And they put a reed in his right hand. We always called them cattails growing up. Just a long, stalky plant with a heavy end. And they place it in the Lord of Glory's hand. And with their robed, crowned, scepter-holding king in front of them, they jeeringly kneel before him and mock him by proclaiming, Hail, King of the Jews! 600 men! Hail, King of the Jews! Laughter, slapping backs. And as much of a joke as it was against the Jews, whom the Romans detested anyway, it was a direct assault at the person of Jesus Christ. Pilate had asked Jesus if he was king of the Jews to answer the accusations of the chief priests and elders. And these soldiers just rolled with that. And they installed Jesus as a makeshift king to provoke him and to mock him. 600 grown men, Roman soldiers playing dress up with God in the flesh. How demonic. But they're not done. Verse 30. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. I don't know that we can understand this. I don't know that we can take all this in. And let me just add this as a little caveat. I was talking to Amanda earlier in the week about this and There's just not much mention of the physical suffering of Jesus here. It's verbal, it's mental, it's emotional. They're spitting on him. They take his scepter or reed out of his hand and they beat him on the head with it. I mean, it would have hurt because of the sensitive nature of the crown and the beating he'd already taken, but... This is not really describing the physical part of it. These 600 grown men spitting on him and beating him with a reed. And the chief priests and the elders had spit on him too after their makeshift trial. And now these 600 Roman soldiers start doing the same. Like an annoying big brother with their five-year-old baby brother. Demeaning, arrogant, hateful. 
And I can't imagine the jeers and the laughter, the cringeworthy humanness of it all. And all of this just a precursor to the main event. Verse 31. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to, be, to crucify him. So all of this soldier fun time led directly to go time. It's time to move now. And I don't have any clue how much Jesus was suffering physically here. We don't have a clue. We don't know. We can't fathom. After the mocking, they take the scarlet robe off of his bloody back, which had probably started adhering to his clotting blood as well. They put his old clothes back on. And as painful as that might have been, it was all just a precursor to the real pain that's coming. They led him away to be crucified. All of Jesus' life has led to this. Oh, we've celebrated him. We've talked about how incredible and how awesome his teaching was and how mighty his miracles were. He calmed the storm with a word. And they were megos phobos. Remember that? Who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? Wow. A legion of demons comes at him in the form of a man. And they said, please, just let us go into these pigs. He speaks the word, they're in the pigs. And everybody's in awe of this man. He basically, John MacArthur says, banished sickness and disease from Palestine in that time, healing everybody who was brought to him, open and blinded eyes, telling lame men to pick up their bed and walk, showing the mighty works and the mighty power of God. And now all of that has led. All of the miracles, all of the teaching, all of the power, all of the mocking, all of the jeering, the miscarriage of justice, and actually leading all the way back into eternity past, it all leads to this. Now comes the crucifixion. We have now arrived at the road to the cross. Verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. Now, it was Roman custom that condemned criminals would carry their own cross through the streets to have maximum impact in exposing them to the masses lining those streets. And if it, based on what they say from history, it was just the cross beam that they were carrying there on their backs. They had the sticks already in the ground for the upright part of the cross so they're carrying the cross beam on their backs and remember this is Jerusalem at Passover time and these streets were teeming with people millions of people and as Jesus leaves the governor's complex with a rough wooden cross beam being carried on his shredded back his weakened frame just couldn't handle the load Jesus was not a sissy he was not a wimp he was not a weakling he was just physically unable himself His humanity on full display. Jesus' body buckles under the mass of the cross beam that he's carrying. So the Roman soldiers say, come on, we got to get busy. So they conscript a random passerby to carry the beam for him. A man from Cyrene. 
Cyrene's a city in northern Africa, modern-day nation of Libya. And it would appear that he's a faithful Jew who had come to celebrate the Passover like Jews from all over the world have done. And as this guy is walking through town, Providence singles him out to carry Jesus' cross. And again, I just cannot imagine. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when the Romans say carry the cross, you carry the cross. So carry the cross he does. Verse 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. So this man Simon from Cyrene carries Jesus' cross as Jesus stumbles up the Via de la Rosa and their walk brings them to a place called Golgotha. That's an Aramaic word that means place of a skull. We would say Calvary because Calvary is the Latin word for the same place. And it was called place of a skull for maybe various reasons. The hill kind of looked like a skull sticking out there. It was a rocky crag and that rock kind of resembled a skull. And I'm sure there were skulls in the area because people had been crucified. And because heads had become skulls there, the place of a skull. Either way, this is where it will happen. He's there. Jesus is at the place where he will die. It's all led up to this. And now watch this. Verse 34 has a kind of innocuous seeming detail, but it's a pretty big deal. Watch this. This is fantastic. This is Jesus. This is Jesus in all of his glory. Now watch this. They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it because he's a Baptist, right? Baptists don't drink, right? No, that's, that's, that's not what's going on. What is going on here? Why would the soldiers offer those being crucified wine to drink mixed with gall? Well, first of all, what is wine mixed with gall? Wine part's pretty easy, right? But what is gall and why would it be mixed with wine? Well, gall is a sedative used to help calm people down. So these very nice Roman soldiers are just trying to help Jesus and those who are being crucified to calm down a little bit, right? So it wouldn't hurt as bad. No, 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 no. These Romans are not into helping relieve any tension or anxiety or to lessen any pain. Gaul was given to help calm down or sedate those being crucified against any resistance to what's being done. It was a way to make unwilling people who are about to suffer do so more easily. Calm them down so they don't struggle as hard against what's happening. Limit the resistance to what was about to be done. And what was about to be done was brutal beyond our imaginations. They're about to drive nails through the hands and feet of these men and suspend them in midair until they suffocate because they can't breathe anymore. A barbaric, cruel, agonizing way to die and the Romans had mastered it. They could stretch it out for days. So 
So yeah, lessen the resistance if you can because they knew what was coming. And watch this. It says that Jesus would not drink it. Why? Jesus is not going to resist them. Jesus is not going to put up a fight and say, you're not doing this to me. No, no, anything but that. Please don't do this to me. (laughs) That's not our Lord. Jesus would not resist, so he didn't need their wine mixed with gall. He did everything he did. Even the things that all others would resist against, he did it willingly. Jesus is willingly laying down his life. You don't have to sedate me. He had said back in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. I'm not going to resist you. I'm laying my life down willingly and I received this authority from my Father. These other two guys, they're probably resisting quite a bit. They need that wine mixed with gall to at least get them on the cross, not Jesus. Jesus tastes the wine-gall mixture and he spits it out. He didn't need to be restrained or calmed in preparation for this horror. He lays himself down willingly and purposefully. He would not drink it. And he would not resist their diabolical actions. That's my Jesus. That's my Lord. And so it comes. Verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And there it is. Matthew, in a very succinct way, writes that Jesus was crucified. And again, note, he's not given physical details. He's not talking about nails and tendons and muscles and blood and sinew. And actually, none of the gospel writers do. John mentions the spear being put in and blood and water coming out. But there's not this mention of the physical aspect of what Jesus went through. The common Jew and Roman would know the gory graphic details of what a crucifixion entailed. So there wasn't need to describe it. They knew it. But sandwiched between a comment about wine and Jesus' clothes is the simple statement, and when they had crucified him. And that's that. They crucified him. Jesus, the Son of God is hanging by his hands and his feet on a Roman cross, absorbing the wrath of God for the sins of his people. They crucified him. Praise God. They crucified him. They crucified him. And we could very well linger here, but Matthew doesn't. So he moves on from wine. They crucified him. And he pivots to Jesus' clothes. (laughs) He says, They divided his garments among them by casting lots. So what's going on here is the soldiers are playing poker for Jesus' clothes. 
which they would have removed from him before raising him up on the cross. He is naked and in their minds totally exposed and humiliated before the crowds passing by. So they figure, hey, we can use his clothes, right? We can use these things. John points out that the inner garment was of one piece, which would have been an expensive thing, actually. John MacArthur says this, though. Every Jew had five articles of clothing. Shoes, a head covering, a belt or sash, an inner garment, and an outer cloak. And he goes on to say, and those would be equally divided, and there must have been four of them. I suppose in this crucifixion operation, somebody got the shoes, somebody got the head covering, somebody else got the belt, and somebody else got the outer cloak, and then they cast lots. The other uh, gospel writers include for that inner cloak because they don't want to cut it because it's of one piece. So four guys get four pieces and one guy gets two. It'd be like two mothers getting a uh, mother getting two gift cards this morning, right? Surprise! Let's 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 get something out of this thing. This Joker hanging here. This king of the Jews, let's at least get something useful out of him. So they play poker for his clothes, which actually fulfills prophecy. That's why Matthew included it, by the way. And what David read this morning in Psalm 22, they cast lots for my garments. It was in there, right? They're fulfilling prophecy. They don't know it. And having finished the division of the clothes, now what? Verse 36. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. Just some guys sitting watching guys die. That's what Roman soldiers did, right? I assume their main job was to keep people away, to keep someone from taking anyone off the cross, which I can't imagine what that would look like. But we know these guys ain't coming off the cross on their own. And these murderers now sit down to watch death come. And they have no idea that they are watching God pour out his wrath upon the sins of the future redeemed there in the bloodied body of Jesus Christ. They just see a naked peasant who obviously has no power, who obviously is a gross disappointment to his followers because they're not even around here. Where are they? I don't even see them. But Jesus is absorbing the wrath of God for the sins of those who would be adopted into the family of God. And the wrath of God is being poured out and these men sit down to keep watch over him there. Little did they know. Verse 37. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, the chief priests and the elders had brought this accusation that Jesus was claiming to be king of the Jews. They had brought that accusation to Pilate, as we saw last week. Pilate asked Jesus if he was the king of the Jews, to which Jesus said, You say. (laughs) So here again, in what appears to be a shot at the chief priests and a shot at the Jews, and a shot at Jesus all at once, the Romans put the charge against Jesus above his head. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Some Jesus, huh? Some king, huh? Some group of people you Jews are, huh? Bunch of jokers, if you ask the Romans. And you know that any would-be king or kingdom that exalts itself against Rome will see the same fate. Just ask the other two guys 
who just so happened to be dying on each side of Jesus. Verse 38. Then two robbers were crucified with them, one on the right and one on the left. Now remember last week, Pilate had released Barabbas as a sign of fake goodwill to the Jews, but these two guys did not get released. They were not as lucky as Barabbas. Two robbers, unnamed here by Matthew, are being crucified as a sign of Rome's might. They're robbers. You steal from Rome, you rob Rome, you die. And you die as a sign to everybody else of the stupidity of stealing or robbing from Rome. You're going to suffer. This is what Rome does to robbers. And you die in an excruciating fashion. It wasn't just revolutionaries, but common criminals that felt the wrath of Rome. And they hung there as a clear warning of crossing Rome. The king of the Jews and two robbers getting what Rome had determined that they deserved. But they're not the only ones there. Watch this, verses 39 and 40. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself! If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross! Now again, there would have been thousands and thousands and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people passing through the Roman streets that day. And as they made their way past the place of a skull, they would see the robbers and the king of the Jews hanging there. And these folks, many of whom probably had shouted Hosanna a few days earlier as Jesus rode in on that foal of a donkey and they yelled, save us now. Son of David, some of those same people, maybe some not, they pass by and they see their quote-unquote king hanging on a cross by his hands and feet. And it says those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. They are disgusted with Jesus. He's an embarrassment to them. They spoke down to the exalted one, which again is a very human thing to do. And they used the accusations against him to justify themselves. We heard you said that you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Looks like that ain't happening. If you could do that, maybe you could save yourself. But you can't, can you? You're guilty of blasphemy, calling yourself the Son of God. But if you were, show us. Prove it by coming down from that cross. Yeah, that's what we thought. You're still hanging there. Wagging their heads. All the while, these folks, like the Romans, are missing the perfect unfolding of the plan of God right before their eyes. And these are probably the Jewish folk who had heard of the Messiah who was coming, who had read Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant, who had read the Psalms where it says, they pierced my hands and my feet. They cast lots for my garments. They knew them way better than we do. And as they see it unfold right before their eyes, they deride him, wagging their heads. 
But alas, they're not the last ones in this passage to do so. Two more groups do, starting with a familiar group in verses 41 to 43. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. These guys, these religious leaders. Nice guys, right? Godly men. Leading with humility and kindness mocking him and if you'll notice they don't even talk to him I can just see them with their backs to him talking to the crowds he said he saved others he cannot save himself he's the king of Israel let him come down they're not even addressing him directly and I think what they're saying here is look at him compared to us those Pharisees that Jesus had called out on the carpet in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthews 5, 6, and 7. They do what they do to be seen by others. They have their reward in full. And unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And now they point back at him, so to speak, and say, look at him. Look at us. We've won. We've won. We killed this crazy man who claimed to be the Son of God. If he's really the Son of God, let him come off that cross. Yeah, that's what we thought. If he come off that cross right now, we'd believe in him. No, they wouldn't. If God would just this, then I'd believe. If he would just this, just this one time. Look at him. And then look at us. We are in power. He's dying. Who's right? That's what they're thinking. So the Romans had derided Jesus. The passers-by had derided Jesus. The chief priests and elders won't even look at him and they deride him. And then verse 44. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same Even the dying men are hurling insults at him. Joker. Faker. Help us. Help yourself. Mighty Messiah. You're right. Even, and we know that one of those guys is going to repent. Matthew doesn't record it though. The only thing we see are two guys who are deriding Jesus on each side of him on the cross. From right beside him, down to those around his cross, those walking the streets, those sitting in the Roman headquarters of the governor, they're all deriding and mocking and dismissing Jesus. And they say, this is the end of this guy's life and ministry? (laughs) What a joke. What a loser. What a weak, impotent, rabbi, Jew, peasant from nowhere up there in Nazareth. This is what happens when people try to oppose Rome. This is what happens when people try to impersonate God. This is what happens when people put faith in their religion. This is what happens to people like that. 
And that's the end of the book for them. That's the end of the TV season. I didn't like how it ended. It was pretty good. Those three and a half years were fun. That was pretty cool. He did a lot of cool stuff. I didn't like how they ended it. I wish they could have ended it some way different. That's what the crowds are saying. Yeah. Ew. It's disappointing. What a twist. I thought he might have been the Messiah, but that's not my Messiah. So Jesus dies on the cross. The main event, the climactic point of his life and ministry, the very purpose he had said that he came for. This is what he came to earth for. This is what he lived for. And oh yeah, it makes sense to us. We grew up in church. We know that he's going to come back to life. Spoiler alert. They don't know that. And they close the book on Jesus and they go about and they have their Passover and they have the lamb slaughtered and they have their feast and they celebrate the goodness of God in the land of the living while Jesus Christ is dead. And the Romans and the passers-by and the chief priests and the elders and the thief on the cross are so disappointed in Jesus and the conclusion they think of his story. Three L's for application, and we're going to see the reaction of these people. And I want to ask you this morning, believer and or non-believer here this morning, are one of these or all of these your reaction to the cross? And we will have a bonus fourth L. First is laugh. Laugh, loss, and leave are the three L's. Laugh, loss, and leave. The first reaction was from the Romans, and they laughed at Jesus. Laughed at him. Those in the high places of power, those in the government, those in the army, Jesus is just a joke to them. This whole crucifixion thing is just an opportunity to have some fun. Heck, let's, let's gamble for his clothes. Nothing serious going on here. This is very unimportant in my everyday life. This is just comic relief. How many people out there, how many people in here are laughing at Jesus today? It's happening. Watch sitcoms. Watch movies. Jesus is a joke. To most people. I should say a lot of people. Let's say it that way. He's just a joke. Paul talked about this. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Preach the cross. Preach about a dying, suffering servant as your hero, as your Messiah, as your Savior. People go, no thanks. (laughs) No, not interested. That's crazy talk. God couldn't have died. If he was God, he couldn't have died, right? That's stupid. You don't even make any sense, you crazy Christians. You're talking paradoxes. 
We're not even really sure Jesus lived. Get out of my face with this he's your savior thing. I don't, I don't need him. Thank you very much. Little baby Jesus, meek and mild. He is the punchline of many jokes. And just like the Romans, we laugh at the suffering servant who God sent to save our souls. Are you laughing at Jesus this morning? Are you laughing at the cross? Because it's so unreal to you that it must be a joke. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart, God said. Keep that in mind if you're laughing at the cross this morning. Others see the cross of Christ as just a loss. They see Jesus as inferior to themselves. Jesus obviously lost. He died. He got crucified. This is like the chief priests and the elders, right? He saved others. He can't save himself. He lost. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he desires. For he said, I'm the son of God. Obviously, he's not. Obviously, he lost. Obviously, he's impotent. Obviously, he has no power. And obviously, he's just dead. He lost. He lost this round. He lost the battle. We're going to bury him and be done with him. The Romans laugh. The religious leaders just see it as a loss. And they're pretty happy about their perceived win and Jesus' loss. Don't need that religion stuff. I'm stronger than that. I'm better than that. A cross? A suffering servant? No thanks. I'll win. I'm a winner. Winners win. That's what we do. We don't put our faith in somebody who gets hung on a cross because that's loss. Laughter, loss, or maybe you just leave. This is disappointment. These are the passers-by. And they walk by and they see the cross. You're not who we thought you were. You let us down. We thought you were going to help us. You can't even help yourself. Goodness gracious, i got stuff to do, I'm busy, I can't hang around here and watch this loser die on a cross. i got to go, i got to leave. I'm not even going to stand here, just disgusting. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself! If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Yeah, that's what I thought. Stay there, i got stuff to do. Places to be, I'm going to leave. Here at the main event in God's historical timeline, this is how people respond to Jesus. They laugh. They see his death, or really his life, as a loss, and they just leave. Now, interestingly enough, (laughs) other gospels, and we won't get in there this morning, we don't have time. We see that all of these groups have people saved from them. The centurion standing at the foot of the cross when the earthquake comes, what's he say? Surely this man was the son of God. A Roman centurion who probably had laughed and mocked at Jesus. We do know one of the thieves 
hanging there beside him. It says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say to him? Today you will be with me in paradise. Chief priests and elders, we get into the book of Acts. Many of the priests believed in him as those who followed him proclaimed the way. The Romans, the thieves, the passers-by, they're going to meet in the town square at Pentecost here in about forty day, about 80 days. Mm, yeah, not 40 days, sorry, I'm doing my math wrong. And they're going to hear a sound like rolling thunder, and they're going to see tongues of fire descending on the apostles, and they're going to hear the message of the cross proclaimed, and about 2,000 of them are going to be saved. So laugh. See it as false. Go ahead and leave. God's coming for you. And the cross is not the end of the story. Praise God. The cross is not the end of the story. Now what about us who have placed our faith in Christ? We're going to finish with that. What's the L for us? It's love, right? We love a cross. We love the Christ of the cross and we love the cross of Christ. Paul says this. Oh, no, it didn't, it didn't populate. I'll read it for you. Colossians 2, 8 through 15. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and it did on that cross as well. And you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him having listened to me having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside nailing it to the cross He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him on the cross. I wouldn't laugh too long at Him. I wouldn't look at the cross as a loss for too long. And I definitely wouldn't walk away and leave because it was at the cross that our sins can be forgiven. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you have committed sins, and you have, the only way that you achieve forgiveness for sins is by the faithful, suffering servant who was Jesus Christ, who carried those sins in his body to that cross, absorbing the wrath of God for your sins. So that God can extend grace to us, having forgiven us our sins because the penalty for our sins has been paid in the perfect work in the body of the suffering servant who is Jesus Christ who others wagged their heads at, who others derided, we boast in Christ alone. 
For there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Galatians 6.14 But far be it from me, Paul says, I say, we say as Christians, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You want something to boast about? There it is. The cross of Jesus Christ. Maybe you leave here today and you're wagging your head at the cross. I don't believe it. I can't prove it. I didn't see it. By the grace of God. May the Holy Spirit open your eyes to see the Christ who hung up on that cross for the forgiveness of your sins. Forgiveness for your sins is a possibility because Jesus Christ died on a cross. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the cross of Christ my God. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let's pray. God, I do thank you that we did not read the end of the story today. And technically there is no end of the story. Because you have made an eternal home for those who would place their faith in the finished work of that Christ who hung on that cross that we read about today. And no, he will not stay dead. They'll lay him in a tomb. And on the third day, he will come out of that tomb in a glorified body. He will show himself alive to over 500 people over a period of 40 days. And then he will ascend into heaven where he sits today at your right hand, in the place of power, reigning and ruling over all of history and all of eternity. God, if we don't see it, if we don't feel it, we're prone to not believe it. But again, God, would you overcome the deadness of our flesh and reveal yourself to those who need to know the sufficiency of the death of Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Holy Spirit, would you move in and reveal the glory of the cross of Christ. And for those who have placed their faith in Jesus, would you show us again? Remind us, and may we remind and encourage each other that the death of Christ put an end to all of my sins. Thank you for the cross of Christ, Father. We bless you, we praise you, we glorify you, we exult in you and in that cross. Thank you for forgiving our sins. Thank you for Jesus. And we do pray in his name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now 
and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. If you want to hang out and talk, please go outside. We'll love you better out there.